Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys here. Well, we made it to September, right? Finally. I've been looking for this since January. I always think of the, uh, the first of September as the first of fall. Do you guys do that? I know it's not. No, the three weeks away, right? But you're ready, right? Cooler temperatures, 50 degrees, fall fest coming up. We've got good coffee drinks to drink, right? You drink your PSLs, your pumpkin spice lattes. Yes? You know, uh, do you know Lazio's Coffee just up the street here? I don't know if you've ever been there. They make these great coffee drinks with real cinnamon in it. I don't know what the difference between real cinnamon and fake cinnamon is, but these are super good. So you might want to check that out. So yeah, I've been looking forward to fall. What, what are you guys looking forward to? We got the start of school, new things are happening. What is getting you out of bed in the morning? It could be something good. You have a passionate pursuit in your life that you're after. It could be just routine that you're set in, or it could be even something bad. Maybe you're, you're moving out of desperation. But something, something has your heart right now. Do you know what it is, if you think about it? And if you know what it is, where is that eventually going to take you? Because whatever have your, has your heart, that's a calling that you have on your life right now. Wherever that's going to take you is going to be your reward. And it's worth uh, thinking thoughtfully about where you're headed. So today is the beginning of a new series, um, a five-week series called Occupy Till I Come. And the overarching theme of this series is going to be the anticipation and thinking about the return of Christ. And then in turn, what is the calling on our lives for this hour as we look forward to the return of Christ? So over the next five weeks, we're going to hear from each one of the elders, uh, taking a different um, a take on the thought of Occupy Until I Come. So we'll hear different aspects of that. But really been looking forward to sharing this with you and been uh, intentional about praying about, about this series and that we're hopeful that through it, that the Lord is going to kindle our affections for him, that he is going to renew our passion for his return, and that we will more clearly see ourselves as the exiles and sojourners that we are here with a mission to attend to uh, for this hour while we await his return. So calling and reward. I have, a, I have a couple of stories about calling and reward. The first one is going to be about me, and then the second one is going to be about you or us. Let's see. I don't know. Thank you. I keep pressing it. Oh, too far. I love technology. Go ahead. Okay. There we go. Oh, oh! <laughs> Look at that guy. Uh, that's me. I'm I'm three year old there. Three years old. Uh, I've been playing drums my entire life. I think I even started before that. I started on my hearing loss program early in life. <laughs> what were my parents thinking? You know, I have, I have always absolutely loved music. I've always been drawn to it. It's got an energy about it. It's got emotion in it. It draws me. It moves me emotionally. I know it moves other people emotionally, and I like sharing it with other people, so I've always been drawn to that. So hopefully you indulge me on a brief musical history of my life to make a point, to make a point. Um, in 1969, I'm eight years old, and I'm listening to my parents' records, 
And so, Petulia Clark's Downtown is my favorite song. You remember that? And our family absolutely loves the, um, the musical Oklahoma. We love the songs from that, and so we sing that. We're excited about that kind of music. So in 1969, my cousins come to live with us through some crazy circumstances. My cousins come, their family come. These are my, these are my worldly cousins, my jaded cousins. They're different than, what, than who we are. And they're into music too. They're not into Petulia Clark, however. So they bring their music, and our musical world's about to collide, and they, uh, they bring their albums, and they open them up, and they put the records on, and they show me Jefferson Airplane, and they show me Creedence Clearwater Revival, and I'm like, whoa. And I'm looking at these pictures and these bands and this hair and this whole lifestyle and this music and my mind is just filling and expanding thinking, man, this is great. <laughs> and they, and they, put on, uh, they put on the Beatles and they put on Hey Jude. And it gets to that outro chorus, you know, that mid-tempo soaring outro chorus, how it goes. Na, 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 na. Sorry, I'm singing for you. Na, 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 na. Hey Jude, and then the drums kick in, boom, ka, chum, chum, ka, and I'm struck. It hits my heart. It's like, man, this is it. You know, my eight-year-old mind doesn't compute this. I don't know this yet, but it's like a calling was put on my life at that moment. You're going to be a drummer, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to perform for people. You're going to be like Ringo Starr. You have you have an idea of you're going to be a rock star. And so, and so, at eight years old or so, I began to orient everything in my life around achieving that goal. So I get drums. I'm buying records. Uh, we're putting on little shows for our neighbors. Um, uh, I'm, I'm taking lessons. I'm practicing as much as I can possibly get away with. I'm hanging out with a garage band up the street. Back when our garage band was actually in a garage, and they were playing, and I'd sit out on the driveway and listen to them. Uh, in high school, all my friends are now musicians, most of them are drummers, and we're living in the music stores. We just hang out there all the time. I'm starting to play in bands, real bands, so I need a car. So I go get a car, I test drive it by the house, I load my drums into the car to make sure they fit before I buy the car. And then I'm playing in, I'm playing in clubs, I'm playing in rock bands and country bands, I'm playing in show bands. Whoever will have me, let me play, I'm going to play. And then I hear the music of Petra. And I hear a second chapter of Acts, and I hear Keith Green, and I'm blown away with that. And I know I'm now propelled further, knowing that I can pursue this without compromising my developing spiritual convictions. And so I'm in college, and against all better sense and advice, I switched my, music, my major to music, uh, because I'm just not interested in anything else. I'm just ready to get out and get on with things, so I do that. And then I get the call. This is what I've been waiting for. I get a call from a friend of mine who's a concert promoter. He's been working with this band in South Carolina. He says, Mark, there's a, a group of a bunch of great Christian brothers in South Carolina. They're in the studio. They're recording their third album right now. They have a big tour lined up, and they're losing their drummer. So what? I am in. So I fly to South Carolina. I audition for, and I join the Rob Castles band. You know... When, when Beth sees that picture, she always goes, what the heck happened to that guy? <laughs> That's the guy she married. But now all my musical aspirations, all my dreams are about to come true. But the tour is coming, but it's not here yet, so we've got a bunch of work to do. So we're, we're working. I live with the sound man. We live in a, a trailer home. 
And we work for temporary services company, uh, doing some of the craziest, wackiest jobs ever, but it just doesn't matter to us because the tour is coming and we're consumed with it. We can't leave the house but in one car because we can't afford the gas. We're, eat, eat, we're eating macaroni and cheese every single day. It makes me shudder when I think of that. And in the wintertime, we sit around in sleeping bags because we keep the heat low because we can't afford it. But it doesn't matter because the tour is coming. And so the band is rehearsing, we're putting a show together, we're prepping our bus, we're even incorporating pyrotechnics into our show because it's the 80s and we want to blow something up. <laughs> and we're, we're making our merchandise and we've got all our merch together, our t-shirts, our records and everything that we're going to do, and then it's time to go. So in 1985, fall of 1985, somewhere in the UP of Michigan, we joined the Resurrection Band on their fall tour as their opening act uh, on their heaven and, Between Heaven and Hell tour. And these guys, are, these guys are big time for us. They got big records, they got big production, they got big show, they got big lights, big sound. They're one of the first bands to have a uh, music video on MTV, actually, and it gets pulled off MTV because controversy over... Uh, over violence, so there's, there's controversy, all this stuff swirling around, and it's all happening, finally. And so it comes down to opening night. I got goosebumps. Opening night. And the lights are off in the auditorium. You know, the auditorium's full, there's tons of people there. Lights are off, they lead you out onto the stage, they help you get up on the drum riser, you get situated, and then they hit the fog machines, and it starts blowing, and it's filling the stage like a cloud. I mean, it's all over. You can feel the mist on your body, you can smell it, it smells like cherries and strawberries. And so it's full. And then they hit the pre-show music and there's a sound effect. There's a sound of a kamikaze fighter plane spiraling. And the count off of the first song has got to be timed, but just when that plane hits the ground. So we're anticipating, this is it, this is it. My heart has been waiting for this moment all my life. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, time this right. Don't, call, don't count off too fast. These guys don't like it when the tempo's fast. And that's time. So it's one, two, three. And on four, they step on the, uh, the trigger for the pyrotechnics, an explosion happens. It's huge. And the lights come on. And they're cutting through the fog. And there's hair, and there's bandanas, and there's all this stuff. <laughs> and there's guitar players moving in synchronized motion like this, right? Because it's the 80s, and it's awesome like that. <laughs> and... And people are cheering, you know, it's, it's wild. I think mostly they're cheering because they didn't get blown up in that explosion that just happened. Because they have no idea who we are, but they're cheering. And the bass drum is huge in that auditorium. It sounds like a can. It's just giant. And it's all glory for me. I'm floating. I'm in the cl cloud of fog there. And it's awesome. You know, I've spent 20 years for that moment. Nearly 20 years, not quite, for that moment. 20 years of discarding things out of my life that didn't fit with achieve, achieving that dream. And here it was, reward achieved. And I loved it, I loved it. But you know what that tour all, all actually got me? You know, besides those few brief shiny moments of playing like that, which was great, you know what they gave me for that? We had a $7 a day per diem to eat on and all the, the warm Diet Coke we could drink. <laughs> and that was about it. You know, I continued to pursue that for another five years and it never got any better than that. That was, that was the reward. In fact, it got much worse. Well, we'd, we'd have to uh, divvy out our cash to do that. You know, so the, at the age of 31, I'm now married to Beth. We have, we have Caitlin. And I realized, well, that reward didn't match up with what I thought. Where was the rock star lifestyle? Where was the money? Where was the fame? And it was time to start over at 31. Time to, time to renew what, 
what I was doing. But it had my heart. That was like a calling on my life. But I hadn't been thoughtful about what the ultimate reward would look like. You know, for us, ultimately knowing what we are called to and where we're going to end up at the end of whatever our heart has, that's, that's good for us. It's clarifying, it's clean, it's powerfully motivating in our life. But not thinking thoughtfully about where you're going to end up, what your reward is ultimately going to be, may take you down a road that you did not anticipate. So the second story I have is a much, much better story, and you're in this story. And this is the story that Jesus tells of calling and reward in Luke 19. And this is the parable of the ten minas. So, and although this parable is going to be set in a Jewish context and directed towards Jewish followers of Jesus and the religious leaders, in principle, in principle application for us, we can find ourselves in the midst of this story as one of the characters in the story or one of the groups of the people in the story. So as, as we work through, just kind of be thinking about that, where, where you think you fit in there. So Jesus is at the end of his three-year earthly ministry and he's headed towards Jerusalem. In just a little over a week's time, he is going to be crucified, he's going to die, and he'll be gloriously resurrected again. So Jesus and his disciples, and then there's a larger crowd following with them, are headed, uh, headed to Jerusalem. They're passing through Jericho when they encounter the tax collector Zacchaeus. And Jesus invites himself into the home of Zacchaeus, and then we hear the story of repentance and restoration, and Jesus declares that salvation has come to the home of Zacchaeus. And then the parable of the ten minas will immediately follow that account. So we'll, we'll work through this just a verse or two at a time. We'll just talk, stop and briefly comment on each of the, each of the passages here. <clears throat> and so beginning in verse 11, it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So Jesus is the nobleman in the story, and he's indicating his return to heaven. He's indicating his ascension, that he was going to go to a higher authority to receive a kingdom. And then that his subsequent return, primarily being his second coming, would not be immediate. The, the kingdom wasn't going to come in fullness at that time. He was not there to overthrow Rome as a political messiah, but just as he had said in the presence of Zacchaeus, he had come to seek and save the lost. He was going to do a work of salvation. And so it continues. He says, he called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. The number 10 indicating that the story is directed towards the larger crowd present and not just the disciples. And so the mina, the single mina that he gives to the servants is equal to about three months wages. And the nobleman is saying to them, you are my trusted servants. Take this investment and while I'm away, use your ability to make a profit. He's saying engage in business, be effective, be proactive, be thoughtful, be intentional. Plan, calculate, participate, share in. Or as the King James Version would say, occupy with the thought of holding. Hold this territory, expand, fill it, take control of it. Occupy till I come. 
Take what I am giving you, receive it, and then occupy until I come. So for us, the larger picture here is one of stewardship over all that God has granted us, that we need to occupy with what God has given us. And that includes our very lives, includes our health, our strength, our mental abilities, includes our time, includes every minute that God grants us. The treasure he lets pass through our hands, the gifts, the privileges, the opportunities, the position that you may be in, the sphere of influence that he grants you, freedom to have a Bible, freedom to gather as the church, grace in our very salvation. Like the nobleman, Jesus is calling, to, calling us to himself and granted us stewardship over all of life for his purposes and for his kingdom. And then uh, 14, it continues. He said, but his citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man or this one, a derogatory term, to reign over us. And he's describing those of the Jewish people, the people that Jesus came from, who are going to reject him. But then this would also apply to us, that those of this age, in the age of grace, still can rage against Jesus' authority and refuse his salvation. Fifteen, And then when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. So the nobleman has returned as a king, and a time of accounting is at hand. Had his servants been faithful in his absence? The first servant rightly and humbly credits his master as his source of provision and ability to, to turn a profit when he says, Lord, it's your mina. It was not his mina that he had done business with. And the high multiplication of the mina, taking a single mina and earning ten more, probably indicates the servant's unusual giftedness and faithfulness. So his master expected faithfulness from him and then gave him the means to carry it out. And this servant doesn't know the hour of his master's return, but he has been anticipating his return, for he knows his master, he knows him to be true to his word, knew that he would return, knew that there would be a day of accounting, and so he has been diligently at work as instructed, and he is ready at the appointed hour. For us in principle, this is what will be revealed at Christ's return. What have we done with the mina that we have been entrusted with? Because there's going to be an accounting given at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or whether evil. So at this time, this is not a judgment of our sin. This is not a determination of our salvation. That is already fully settled in the work of the cross, and we are saved by faith alone in Christ. Rather, this is an examination of what we have done with all the Lord has placed under our hands to do. Have we been good stewards? Have we been faithful? Have we been humble? Have we been strategic? Have we made the best use of this hour? And will our work be judged good? Or will it be judged evil? 
So if this judgment is not um, judgment of sin, what would evil work look like? In 1 Corinthians 3, it says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So one whose work is burned up, but he himself is saved, has the foundation of salvation, but has works that will not stand in examination. So evil work could look like poor stewardship or foolish use of what God grants us or even using the gifts that God gives us for uh, selfish purposes or self-exaltation. So at that time, God will have mercy on his servant, but will have no mercy on his works. But the, the work of the first servant is going to stand in 17. And so the king says to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Man, that seems out of proportion, doesn't it? You know, to take and work with a single mina, gain ten more, and then have authority over ten cities. It's an abundant reward. It's extravagant. But this is befitting. The reward is befitting the giver, the king, who now reigns over everything. The extravagance of the reward reflects the nature of the giver. And faithful stewardship over what the Lord grants us, the gifts he gives us for this hour, will result in greater rewards and greater responsibilities in the next life. And then the second servant came and he said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are over five cities. So this servant earned less profit than the first, and he gained less reward than the first. And for the, us, that indicates that there will be differing degrees of reward in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. So even though there are different degrees of reward in heaven, it's, it is not accompanied by the corruption of this world. So there's no... There's no envy, jealousy, or frustrations over these differences. For we will all be fully saved. We will be fully happy, with God, happy in God. And we will shall know in the presence of God the fullness of joy and his pleasures forevermore. John Piper has a, a helpful quote, I think, that I have on your study sheet there, that he, as he relates to the differing um, rewards in heaven, as he says, differing uh, may relate to differing capacities for happiness in God. He says, if you get down to the essence of what would be a good reward in heaven, it is knowing and tasting and having a capacity for greater delights in God and awareness of God and enjoyment in God. And that is a good reward. So there are, no, there are no second class citizens in heaven, but faithful stewardship will be awarded accordingly and will be awarded abundantly. And then the third comes, and he says, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. The third to come is described as another. He is not readily described as a servant. He is distinct from the previous two that have reported. 
This servant has not labored. He has not engaged in business. He has not occupied. Instead, he has let the investment lay dormant. And laying aside the mina and the handkerchief would not be considered as safe as burying it in the ground. So not only has the servant been faithless, it's likely that he is careless. Just as we could be careless or indifferent to the cause and calling on our lives. But this servant obviously does not know his master and he is scrambling in excuses as he's exposed. He describes his master as ungenerous and in fact calls him a thief, taking what you did not deposit, reaping what you did not sow. The first two accounts have already proven him wrong with the other two servants because the master obviously has given provision and then he rewarded the faithfulness abundantly. So this servant does not know his master. And then the king is going to reply to him. And he said, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So the king presses in on the servant with his own words. That if he truly believed what he said, truly believed what he thought about him, he should have at the very least placed the money in the bank, which would have only required minimal effort on his part. If he truly believed him to be a severe man, he would have been compelled to do something for his own well-being. It may well be that this third servant did not anticipate that his master would return or there would be no day of accounting, and he is wrong. So it's interesting, What in application, who is that third servant? How do we identify him, and how would that be helpful for us? There's two main options put forth as to who this servant is. The first is that the servant is a carnal believer who bears no enduring fruit and is saved only as through fire. So he has the foundation of salvation, but he has lived a faithless life. The second option is that the servant is in association with or in community with believers, but he does not have a relationship with Christ. His lack of external evidence and work may indicate that he has a dead faith, for faith apart from works is dead. And we are only justified by faith, but faith that appears to be dead may not be real. It may not be saving faith. And this is along the same lines as what Second Peter says when he says to make your calling and election sure that both Kent and Larry have taught on numerous times this last year. So the king continues, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the onlookers are shocked at what their master does. I, I think apparently they think he's making a mistake. Lord, he has 10 minas. What are you doing? But the nobleman is a king. He reigns over all. He is demonstrating who he is, that he is generous, that this is his character. And to those who prove themselves faithful, it is his pleasure that they shall have greater reward, greater responsibilities. To those that have gifts they will not use or they're indifferent to, they will be taken away. 
If they will not serve their master with what he gives them, why should they serve themselves? They will be taken away. And then the final verse of the parable. But it's for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are chilling words. In the immediate application, the enemies are primarily the Jewish leadership and this judgment may relate to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. But this is also a picture of the final judgment for those who reject Jesus. That the age of grace is gonna end in a moment. At the return of Jesus, in the twinkling of an eye, the age of grace is done. There's no more time for arguments. There's no more time to protest. There's no more time for repentance, but rather a time of judgment only for those that have rejected Christ. As Hebrews 9 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So where do we find ourselves in the story? What group of people are we gonna be found with at the return of Jesus? Are we gonna be in the faithful? The faithful servants who are diligently at work and are rewarded are going to be among the unfaithful who receive nothing or are we among those who still reject the authority of Jesus and, re and reject his offer of salvation. We know what the apostles did as they were commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. They watched as he ascended back to heaven Ten days later, they are assembled in the upper room, and with the sound of a mighty rushing wind, they are filled with the promised Holy Spirit. They receive their mina. They receive their gifts. They receive their abilities. And they begin to give their lives boldly in the cause of Christ. And they were faithful, and they turned the world upside down. And although we don't compare ourselves to the apostles and their unique time in history, the calling on our lives to be faithful is the same as theirs. And although we don't compare ourselves to the gifts the apostles received, to the gifts that we have, it is the same spirit that filled them that fills us. It's the same spirit by which they were faithful to turn the world upside down that lives in us today. The very same. You know, if we think about this corporately, this call to be faithful, if we think about it as the body, as Lion and Lamb Church specific, for us to answer this call, for Lion and Lamb Church to be that city on a hill, that we would be a light to each other, that we'd be a light to the world, requires that all of us are working together. Each member, each member here is needed and needs to be faithful to the call and working and walking through the good works that Christ created us to do. And so of all the areas of stewardship that God has granted us, all the areas that we should be faithful in, that we should think about and talk about, I want to talk about one area that God has uniquely designed and given us, and that is of the spiritual gifts. These are the gifts that he gives us as the body so that we can work together to build up the body, to strengthen each other's faith, to proclaim the gospel, and to further the kingdom. There, these gifts are given for the hour that we're living in as we await the return of Jesus. 
And as 1 Peter says, as each of us has received a gift, we want to use it to serve one another. So these are the gifts that enable us to walk out the good works we are created for. And we receive these gifts from the Holy Spirit at salvation, or receive them as we're being sanctified, or um, they may be an enrichment of skills that we had before we were saved. But the point being that they are not of our own doing and they're not of our own choosing. These gifts are God-given, they're God-enabled, and they're God-empowered. We've got to remember that. In 1 Corinthians 12, it said, Now there are varieties of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but it's the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. They are apportioned to each one individually as he wills. This is, this is God's marvelous plan, that he would give the body a diversity of gifts so that we have to depend on each other. We must depend on each other. This is his plan, that we would have greater unity. And this is how we will become the city on the hill that we need to be. So, if they are given to each of us as God sees fit, what are these gifts? And you guys probably mostly know those, but they're in your study sheet. There's a list there of uh, six different lists that the New Testament puts forth of what these gifts are. Each list is, is somewhat different from the other, and no one list lists all the same gifts on the same list. And I think the point being is that these lists are probably not exhaustive, or the, uh, the gift heading could be multifaceted, or they just may be general examples. So this is a huge discussion uh, that was way too broad that we, that we can do today. So huge discussion about what these gifts are, how they work. So if you don't know, I would hope that you and would uh, explore that further on your own studies or in your own uh, study groups or home groups. So how do I know what my gifts are? Do you guys know what your gifts are? Not too many hands, <laughs> a few. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of us that do know what our gifts are or, or have an idea of what they are. But if you don't, if this is new to you, then you simply pray and ask the Lord, Lord, what have you given me uh, uniquely that I may serve you? You know, you can also ask other spiritually mature believers what they think your gifts are. What, what do they see that you're doing well to strengthen the body? Or when you see um, others serving, are you drawn to what they're doing? Or you see someone serving in a specific way and you're drawn to do the very same thing that they're doing, but you think, you know, I could never do what they're doing. And you're absolutely right, you probably cannot. But don't let yourself off the hook easily because the manifestation of the spirit and gift may be the same area, but it's gonna look different for you. So just begin by stepping out in faith and obedience Try serving in different areas, try different things, and your gifts will become clear to you. You know, spiritual gifts tests can also be helpful in clarifying what your gifts may be. Have you guys taken spiritual gifts tests before? Some? Uh, were they helpful for you? Or Okay. I think they are somewhat helpful. They should be taken with a, a grain of salt a little bit because they can limit you potentially or pigeonhole you a little bit. Um, there's a link in your study guide for a spiritual gifts website. This is kind of a new site, and I think it's really good. Uh, it explores the, uh, the spiritual gifts and talks about them at length on how they work and what they all entail. 
And if you even explore, explore it a little bit further, they'll kind of match up your personality type with your spiritual gifts and talk about the advantages that you have and the disadvantages you had related to that. Kind of my experience, maybe some of you had the same with spiritual gifts tests. I, I probably took six of these tests maybe over uh, a decade. And every time I take one, they'd always come out the same. The higher gifts would be listed as some of the speaking gifts. And I would kind of chuckle and I'd just set it aside. I said, that's not it. I don't, I don't enjoy speaking. I don't enjoy leading. I don't like being in front of people. I don't like talking in front of people. So I just kind of ignored that. And we came to Line of Lamb a few years ago. I'm in a conversation with Mike Halpin one night. And he said, Mark, what do you think your spiritual gifts are? I said, well, I take these tests. This is what it says. I don't think that's what it is because, you know, I can't do what so-and-so does. He goes, well, I think those, you think, th- think those are your gifts, but maybe how it works out is not going to be the same as everybody else. But you are a communicator. I said, okay, I guess I can communicate a little bit. And so that was an opening door for me where God began to work in my heart in that area where previously, if I was asked, Mark, will you lead a home group? Nope. I have no ability, have no interest in doing that. Will you lead a little discussion group over here? No. Would you provide some leadership here? Nope, 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 nope. I'm not going to do any of those things. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not qualified, and I'm, more than that, I'm not comfortable with it, so I'm not doing it. And, and the Lord's talking to me, and he says, do you get tired of hearing yourself say no? <laughs> yes, I do. Well, then, then try say yes. I said, okay. All right. Yes, Lord, I will do that. But Lord, if you, if you don't show up in the middle of that, or whatever I'm doing, you're called, called to do, nothing's going to happen. I've got no ability here. And that was the whole point. I've got nothing. I'm just a vessel, like we're vessels. God fills, he gives, he enables, he empowers. He's the one that does the work. He just needs a willing servant to say yes, and then stand back and watch God work. You know, how we serve, how we view our gifts is of the utmost importance. Would it be hard for you to believe that we could take a gift from God, something we could have never earned our own, and then use it in a way that would dishonor him? That's the way we run. When we forget that God has granted the gifts, we can become arrogant, we can become boastful, we can become proud of our abilities, we can become careless in their use. So if I have the gift of exhortation, I have the gift of encouragement, I want to lift you up, I want to motivate you spiritually, I see you're at point A, I want to encourage you to move to point B. And so I can do that under the control of the Spirit in a winsome and energetic and loving way, or I can be harsh and proud, and I can be frustrated with you. And so that's why Paul says, I want you to desire the gifts and the greater gifts but do all things in love because these gifts are just for this hour and when Christ returns, these gifts are done, but love is going to remain. So whatever we do, it has to be bathed in love and in the Spirit. We can also forget, um, we can also look at a way at the gifts as uh, it questions God's wisdom, like I do. The thought that God would give you a gift that you have no means of walking out which on initial appearance makes no sense to you. This absolutely makes no sense, God. I don't know what you're asking me to do. And we are forgetting in that moment that God is the giver of all good gifts and he has created you for this purpose. 
So I don't, I don't know where you are on the spectrum of spiritual gifts and how involved you are with that and in, in incorporating those and using those regularly. You may be using those, and I hope that you are, and I'm thankful if you are. God is being honored if you are. But if you're not, if you're on the sidelines here, if you're at point A, may I encourage you today, may I exhort you today to move to point B. And this may simply be turning towards the Lord instead of turning your back and saying yes. I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to know the end of what you're going to do, Lord. But I will say yes to you. And you'll see God work. You will be built up. We will be built up. And Lion and Lamb Church will be more and more the city on the hill that we're called to be. Worship band, would you come? You know, um, think about this. The truth that our God, creator God, would come to us in our rebellion. That he would reach into the pit that we're in and pull us out. That he would set us on the rock. He would establish us and make us strong. That he would grant, grant us with steadfast love and mercy. And then that he would invite us in to the privilege of building the kingdom of his beloved son. The truth is stunning. But he would give us gifts. He would empower us, enable us to use those gifts. He would cause us to be faithful. And then he would reward us for the faithfulness. His love is extravagant. And it's overflowing. It's hard to take in. And this is a calling that's worthy of our lives. This is a calling that's worthy of orienting all our life around. Of discarding things out of our life that don't aim for that goal. That don't value that reward. For we must be at work when Christ returns. So we need to consider, Lion and Lamb, how we can stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see that day drawing near. For that day is drawing near when Jesus is going to return, and we are going to be welcomed into his eternal kingdom, and for all of eternity, we are going to experience unbroken fellowship with our Lord. And God is going to display the riches of his grace to us. And he is going to reward the faithful with the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown incorruptible, the crown of glory, and the crown of rejoicing. Glory to God. That day is coming. And how our souls yearn and even faint for that day. But until that day comes, we occupy. Until that day comes, we go and warn the darkness that the light of Jesus Christ has overcome. And until that day comes, we speak to all injustice that the moment of its ending is sure to come. That day is sure to come. That day is sure to come. Come, Lord Jesus.